The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to Utah Symphony, Utah Opera's Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look at the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Whenever humans come together for any reason, music is there. Weddings, funerals, graduations, men and women marching off to war, sporting events, a night on the town, prayer, a romantic dinner, mothers rocking their infants to sleep. Music is part of the fabric of everyday life. In the last few weeks, concert halls across the country and around the world are suddenly temporarily closed. This feels like a moment that we may remember for a very long time. And many people find themselves looking for ways to make sense of what's going on, or even looking for ways to calm a troubled mind. Today, we'd like to share some moments in history where music played a significant role. And this was all inspired by, uh, it was a simple video of a shutdown street in Siena, Italy, and, they, and people from the windows began singing the song of Siena. Such a poignant moment because these people are all closed in their homes, and then of course these Flash mobs have come across Italy now. We've seen Nessun Dorma sung by an opera singer from a window. I mean, just so many examples of people trying to connect when they're being told by necessity that they need to stay isolated. It's just not the human condition to stay isolated. And so music is one way that people are reaching out. One of the reasons that we thought it was a good idea to do this was that we are right now, Carol, you and I, very socially distant and our community and our companies are feeling the pressures of this crisis. And rather than go dark and close our doors, we thought that we'd keep them open and do a little singing from our own balcony, as it were. And this idea for a podcast talking about this very important role of our art form in the human condition came from our producer and editor, Robert Bedont. So I'd like to thank him. And I think he's right. We have a duty here and I'm happy to provide some insight, and maybe some solace. And as we have been in with Gallo's humor, joking, Carol, provide maybe a playlist for this moment in time. So let's talk about some of the things that brought us to this place. Well, there's so many stories that have come up as we've talked about this topic. Uh, as an opera person, I immediately thought of the hundreds of thousands of Italians who took to the streets after Verdi's funeral. And of course, it's been inflated or conflated as a myth. Yeah. It's been made into a spontaneous assemblage of these people to sing the great chorus of Pensiero from Verdi's opera Nabucco. In researching this, we discovered that that was actually a, a city plan. And yeah. in fact, Arturo Toscanini conducted this chorus. And so the call was made for people to come and assemble and do this. But still, the lack of spontaneity in no way diminishes the power of singing that beautiful chorus, which is Hebrew exiles talking about thinking of their, their homeland and longing for returning to that place that was so special and so important to that culture and that nation. I agree that it doesn't matter that this was a civic plan. In fact, I think that makes the story a little bit more poignant and a little bit more pertinent for us today. The spontaneity of 300,000 people singing this piece was always hard to imagine and accept, so I'm, I'm prone to believe in the, uh, in the civic planning aspect of this. I think communities coming together in that way and thinking ahead and being proactive about making art a part of healing, both present and future, 
is exactly what we're talking about today. This song has long had myth associated with it. People assumed that Verdi wrote Nabucco as, um, a, as a protest piece. He didn't. That music took on that guise much later. And Verdi's role in Italian history as a revolutionary figure is something that was largely created later and after his life. So the notion that people came to this on their own, I think is true because people in the town came to this and decided it would be an appropriate way to commemorate him. So that's one way that music was used to heal a nation and commemorate a important figure in that nation's history. It's not the first time or the last that music played an important part in funerals. There are some other examples of this, right, Carol? Yeah, I was looking into um, the assassination of John F. Kennedy Jr. in 1963. And in my mind, the Eroica Symphony of Beethoven was associated. And so to get the details, the details of it are really touching. And I had goosebumps all over imagining this moment. What I discovered is it was actually a Boston Symphony Orchestra concert on the day of his assassination. It was a two o'clock radio broadcast, and you can actually find the actual broadcast uh, via NPR and listen to the moment that this happened. One of the things about this broadcast that may get lost in the discussion is that for the people in the audience, it was for, I guess all of them, this was the days obviously before cell phones and instant messaging, this was the first time they'd heard that the president had been shot. So Eric Leinsdorf, music director, had alerted the librarian to the fact early and got him to run to the archives and collect all of the parts for the, for the second movement of the Eroica Symphony and then announced from the stage to gasps and horror that the president had been assassinated. And then they had basically the entire length of that movement to reflect on what they'd just heard. I mean, it's a powerful, incredible image. Yeah, I mean, now we would all find that out by alerts on our cell phone you know we were actually in opera rehearsal and um, during intermission on Wednesday we discovered that the NBA season was canceled and this is when it sounds a little bit strange but this is when the current situation became even more stark and real and so but we all were able to get that via our cell phone alerts and just to imagine hearing that kind of news from the music director of the Boston Symphony and of course Kennedy was a son of Boston and so this Mm -hmm. was incredibly poignant that this happened and so Eric Leinsdorf is announcing this terrible news and then um, honoring him through that somber music of the funeral march the second movement really is a powerful image you know we talked about the mythology around these events and how it affected the memory of Verdi's funeral it's certainly the case with JFK's funeral and other state funerals in the U.S. I know that there's often been this assumption that the Adagietto from Mahler 5 was played at JFK's funeral. It wasn't, it was actually played at Robert's funeral. Um, Bernstein conducted that and that piece written as a love letter to Alma has now become readily associated with death and loss. I think it's interesting the way those events, one real, one imagined have kind of dictated the future life of that particular music. The same could be said for Barber's Adagio for Strings, which I read um, conductor commentator Robert Capolo rightfully said that piece expresses the stages of grief almost perfectly. Really, it starts, does. It starts very sad. It climaxes to this incredible anguish and then has a certain amount of resolve at the end. I think it was an appropriate choice for FDR's funeral and probably many since. I remember my best friend when in high school, she was going through some things and she would talk about how she would, in those really crisis moments for her, it was a very personal piece. She would 
play Adagio for Strings on an LP back then, and she would just use it as her time to grieve. And she, I think she followed that path that the piece draws, and that became part of her therapy. So, you know, I, I'm reminded also of the story, which is probably assumed by many to be apocryphal, of the band on the Titanic playing until the very last second as that ship went down. And there's no debate that that is what happened, that they were lost. But the one thing that is under debate is what they played. And of course, everybody always associates Nearer My God to Thee with that moment because mm -hmm. one of the people in the group had always said that if I'm ever on a ship that goes down, that's what I'm going to play. But research since has, has shown that it was probably this hymn called Song of Autumn because that was a tune that was in their books and Nearer mm -hmm. My God to Thee was not. But I know that a lot of people, when they um, commemorate that event, they choose the the uh, near my God to thee to play as, as opposed to autumn, maybe because it makes a better story. I'm not even sure that it matters so much. The important part is these people in this incredibly harrowing moment had this one thing to offer and they did it at great personal cost. I mean, Absolutely. that might be the most dramatic uh, version of this theme we're trying to talk about today. Right. We don't really think of musicians as necessarily being heroes, but in that case, they definitely were. Yeah, I think so, too. You, you brought up something, Carol, that I have to admit, sadly, that I didn't remember, which is this whole rolling requiem concept after 9-11. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, that was a shocking event that changed everything for all of us. At the moment that it happened, I don't. I know people gathered in concert halls and in churches to try to to work through and also you know our, I think as humans we want to gather together when there's a crisis which is what makes this particular one so challenging because that's just the opposite of what we need to do but for this rolling requiem a year later they commemorated the attacks of 9-11 with this very beautiful tribute they started a rolling requiem at 8:46 a.m which was the time of the first impact and it started in Auckland New Zealand and traveled the globe and in each time zone, I think it may have been as many as 200 choruses and then orchestra or piano as they had available or organ began the Mozart Requiem at 8.46 their time. And it concluded with a final performance beginning in American Samoa. It's interesting to me, that was a long reaction to something that was relatively quick. The, the attacks on 9-11 were over in the snap of a finger, if you think on in terms of time, the way we perceive it looking back. This is something we're going through in real time, and we have no idea how long it's going to last. There's no end to this, at least not one that anyone can reasonably predict. So I wonder how music's role changes in a moment like this one. It's I feel like we're in unprecedented territory. This isn't a funeral. This isn't an attack on a nation. This is an ongoing crisis. It's and like a new human condition. Absolutely. So I wonder how music plays a role. Maybe this might be the, the time where spontaneity actually is the only way to respond because formal concert giving is suspended for who knows how long. Yeah. So it's these impromptu songs from balconies that are going to carry us through this moment. What do you think? Well, absolutely. I want to say that I have noticed already a number of people announcing that they're going to live stream concerts whenever they can on Facebook. Uh, the wonderful opera singer Joyce DiDonato brought music from Verter, the opera by Massonet, from her living room 
with some friends at a safe distance from each other. But, uh, you know, just everyone is, I think everyone out there in this musical community of ours, which is a dysfunctional family in so many ways, but a family nonetheless, we're trying to figure out how we can keep the music going. We can't just let the the shut concert hall doors and opera theater doors dictate that music does or doesn't continue. The concept of these shut doors is something I want to respond to because this is unprecedented territory. I'm hearing from colleagues all around the industry that some of these doors will never reopen, that these several, potentially several months of closure will will cause some companies to fail. And that is a heartbreaking result for me. And I hope that this industry, that this family, as Carol rightly calls us, rallies around those companies that aren't prepared to weather something of this magnitude. Big companies like the Utah Symphony, Grand Teton Music Festival will survive. We'll figure out how to do this. We have endowments, we have supporters, but small management houses, small orchestras with budgets in the hundreds of thousands, not the multiple millions, are going to have a really hard time dealing with the fact that the cash spigots have been turned off. And I think we need to help each other through this process. And performing artists, those of you out there who listen to the podcast may not realize that performing artists are not paid until they play. They're not on and salary. So, yeah, they're not salaried. And so, um, you know, it's been heartening to see the number of companies whose uh, performances have been canceled by this horrible phrase that we never thought we'd see used, force majeure, which right. is our, this act of God clause that comes in every contract. And of course, we're all looking at that differently now. Right. And so um, I've been seeing an outpouring of generosity too from people who are just a little bit better off. No one, even everyone's losing gigs in this, but just seeing them try to create funds to help their less fortunate brothers and sisters, because there's just... Uh, you know, no one really knows which of their next gigs is going to still happen. Right. It's like I say, both large and small, people are going to feel this across the industry. And it, some of the companies are alloyed against such stoppages. Others, including people that have been on this show, are not. And there needs to be a community-wide um, commitment to making sure that we're whole on the other end of this. Mm-hmm. Because... I, our, our place in the world, our role during times like this will largely be something that shifts over time in the next couple of months. But the fact that we need to be here at the end of it is not negotiable. And I hope that everyone who has capacity, after they've made sure sick people are well, help keep our important cultural institutions alive. At the risk of all of the stories we're sharing going too much towards the mourning side. And I mean, of course, we can't deny that music isn't important for times of mourning, but it is also very important for times of joy. And I thought of 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell. That was a time for many of us who grew up as Cold War kids. We thought that would never happen. We thought that communism, that the divided country of Germany was just part of what we were going to always have. And so I remember so vividly Leonard Bernstein, and of course he was involved in 
I think you mentioned him already with Robert F. Kennedy's funeral. Leonard Bernstein was also involved in celebrating the fall of the Berlin Wall. He conducted two concerts in December of 1989, so just about a month and a half after the fall of the wall. On December 23rd, he conducted in West Berlin, and then on December 25th, Christmas Day, he conducted in East Berlin. And they performed uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony with the fabulous Ode to Joy that is such an expression of humanity and joy and unity. And the opening words for that final chorus are Freude, Schöne, Götterfunken, which means joy, beautiful spark of the gods. Bernstein actually asked that the, that text be changed to Freiheit, Schöner Götterfunken, and Freiheit means freedom. He wanted to celebrate the fact that Germany was unifying and that there was going to be a level of freedom that had not been enjoyed for several decades there, and it was such an amazing moment. What I love about this moment is not just the call to freedom, but the reunification aspect of it, because this music would obviously work in any culture in any similar situation, but in this particular culture where there was an East Berlin and a West Berlin and East Germany and a West Germany, this was Beethoven, who's just German. And I think that that kind of bringing people back together was an important thing to also highlight in that moment. And I'm glad that um, the piece that Bernstein chose and frankly couldn't have chosen any other was German in that moment. I had an experience in graduate school, a trauma experience that kind of was coming to a head right before my first graduate recital. And in the midst of processing all of these things that were happening in my life, I of course immediately thought, should I just cancel the graduate recital? But I actually realized then that practicing and going into the practice room, closing the door and just focusing on this music really was part of healing and coping. And so for me, strangely enough, the music of Francis Poulenc, which was the focus of this recital, has a healing feel to me. I was performing a couple of song cycles, some solo music, and then uh, uh, the oboe sonata. So I have... um, Francis Poulenc is a a unique French composer. He's known for being often quite satirical or a little bit irreverent, but in my mind, he's also part of my healing for that moment. I I think that's great that you've got these associations that will probably be with you forever. And I know that you cautioned us, Carol, from talking too much about death, but my own personal story does touch on that again, at least uh, in a very specific way. In 2015, Utah Symphony was having its 75th anniversary season and we were doing a lot of commissioning that year. We commissioned three composers to write new works for us that we were going to put on a, on a CD. And I lost my mom in February of that year. And it was right about the time we were recording a piece by Augusta Reed Thomas, one of those three commissions, Eos, Goddess of the Dawn. And the timing of everything with my mom dictated that I had to be away during the week of those concerts, but I I bought a ticket so I could get back in time to do the patch sessions that always follow recordings because that's when the, everything is very delicate and, and very carefully timed and I just really felt like I needed to be there for those things. I think part of me also wanted a little bit of distraction from everything I was feeling Absolutely. with my siblings. So I came back, I did those sessions, Augusta was there, 
everybody knew what I'd just been through. Everyone was very kind. But I have ever since associated that piece with, I, I guess, a step towards healing after losing my mom. And I listen to it every February now, every February. It's been five years and I haven't missed a year yet. And I'll probably do it forever because that piece is something I hear it when I think about my mom. So I'm hoping that that comes off not as maudlin, but as, as something that's healthy and no, I think looking it's, forward. It's triumphant and it's therapeutic and it's, um, it's just human. That's everything we're trying to talk about right now. While uh, we're not in the concert hall or on the opera stage, Utah Symphony Utah Opera will be presenting random acts of music via our social media platforms on Instagram and Facebook. And so please look for those on a daily basis because we want to keep the music going. You don't have to be a member of the Utah Symphony or Utah Opera to perform your own random act of music. Use Italy as your guide. I'm not necessarily talking about the Italy during the time of Verdi that planned a 300,000 person chorus with Toscanini conducting. I'm talking about the Italy now where people are standing on their balcony by themselves with an accordion and trying to lead their neighborhoods in song. You can do something like that too. If you're a musician or have been at any point in your life, dig that instrument out of the basement, out of the attic, and bring a little bit of joy to your community too. Stay safe and take care of each other. I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>